Good morning. How has your weekend been so far? I feel like you guys still have tryptophan in you from Turkey. I know I do. Well, hey, welcome to Portico Church. Um, one of the fun things about going to church is hearing about mistakes the pastor's made in his life, right? That's fun. So let me tell you about one of them. I had this really bad habit um, of not playing the guessing game with my kids when they would give me a gift. Uh, you, you know how this goes. A kid will come up to you, and sometimes it's not a kid. Maybe it's you. I don't know. Uh, and they would say, guess what? Like, guess what I got you? And they give you this gift for Father's Day or for Christmas. I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's a, a present? I'm just not playing it. Like, no, no, you, I mean, you can't open it until you take a guess. Like, I don't know, a, you know, a book. No, Dad, no, Dad. And I would get to the point where I just stopped guessing, and they get super irritated. Sometimes they would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I never quite understood it. Uh, until I was actually thinking through this verse this week. And what I truly realize is it's really not about a guessing game, is it? Why do you think the kid wants you to guess what they've given you? Why is that? Yeah, man. They want to know that they have actually given you something that exceeds your imagination. So you might say, oh, well, I don't know, maybe you got me a notebook. But when in reality, they got you a PS5, and you're going to be blown away by it. They want you to be blown away by the gift they have given you. And so I learned the hard way that I didn't want to play. And what it really showed to them was, and I think this is why they didn't like it, I don't really expect you to blow my mind by your gift. Neat. Just let's, let's open it. And although I do, I do love my kids, like, I realized that was probably not a great thing to do. So here we are in Advent, as Pastor Johnny Reeves says. It's built on longing and expectations and hope. It is the Advent is the time between the coming of Jesus, his incarnation, and his return. And so we're kind of stuck in the middle and when we get into the season of longing and expectation, kind of like Pastor Reef said, yeah, I don't really expect anything different to happen this year. And so the gift that God brings to us, there's no alacrity in our response. There's no joy in it. An old-timey theologian, uh, European guy, Karl Barth, I think he said this. It's one of my favorite sayings. He said, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. You'll know you're thankful for something, and your kids will know you're thankful for something by the joy in which you receive it. So the simple fact is Advent, getting into the holiday season, is to give us a longing, but many times it gives us a loneliness, doesn't it? And actually, the loneliness isn't necessarily bad, but how do we wrap that up into the promise that we're celebrating from God? Because many times, Christmas is about nostalgia, it's about tradition, and the sign of Christmas is probably more about consumption, right, than Christ. I get that. But man, we, it, we are to be, find joy in it. 
So we're going to do something really weird this Christmas. It's Portica. We always do something weird. Today, I'm going to show you a snapshot in Israel's history. Because the verse that we're going to talk about, Matthew, 8, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, it's very ubiquitous for Christmas. You know the verse. It talks about a virgin um, will, will be, be pregnant with a child that comes from God, about the Messiah. We just sang this, the King of Israel. We know that, and even if you aren't a believer or you're tuning in, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Jesus is the King of the Jews, um, but I don't really know what that means. Friends, we need to do a deep dive into the promise that God has given to his people. And we're going to do that just by taking a snapshot in Israel's history. Because as the Apostle Paul would say in Acts, hey friends, this didn't go down in some corner of the world. There were real geopolitical concerns for Israel at that time. And the promises that I gave them mattered to them even if they were fulfilled in a lesser way that pointed to the true fulfillment of Jesus. So we're going to look at a snapshot in Isaiah wherein Matthew copies or pulls that promise out of Isaiah unto us a child is given um, or, the, or the virgin shall bear a child. He uses that, but many times we skip over the original context of that promise. So we want to find that and understand that. So I'm going to give you, it's going to be a little bit more like story time. I'm sorry about that, but it is Christmas. So I'm going to tell you the story of what happened in Israel about 800 years before Jesus was born with one specific king. And I want you to see there's three things that will be uh, correspond to that in Matthew. One is there's a promise to them. Uh, secondly, there's a sign that's given to explain the promise. And it comes in the form of a child, a sign child. And lastly, it leads to a very real salvation for them, both in that moment and it points to a greater salvation. So a promise, a sign, and a salvation. And I will be, and if you're following along um, and you want to open up your Bible, I will be in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. And then once, once we get to it, we'll be in Matthew verse 1, or chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which should sound very familiar. Okay, so thank you for... Thank you for jumping in with us. Um, this is going to feel a little less nostalgic and a little bit more like a history lesson. I'm okay with that. I apologize, uh, but it does get to Jesus, so I will not apologize for that. So let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to be here with us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We know that you are the God of all history and that you didn't just wake up one day and show up to us, Lord, you have been active from the beginning of time, the beginning of humanity, to bring yourself a people, Lord, that your grace might um, be received by all nations. So I pray as we open up your word, Lord, you would open our hearts that we might behold its treasure, that you would open your word, in fact, that we might behold its treasure and be forever changed. So we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so here's how the story goes. Israel had kings. Probably the most famous kings were Saul, David, and Solomon. They were the best kings. And God had always promised that the, the sin that created incredible trauma between mankind and humanity, 
that resulted in an exile out of God's kingdom in Genesis would be restored through the seed of the woman. And there was this expectation that one would come that would set right everything that's been wrong. It seemed that it was going to be David because he was after God's own heart. But it didn't work out. It seemed that it was going to be Solomon because he had great wealth, David's son. Didn't quite get there. By the time Solomon's son comes on the scene for Haboam, there's a division now, and the kingdom of Israel is split through civil war into what you will see in your Old Testament as a, a southern kingdom or Judah, sometimes it's called in your, in your Bible, or a northern kingdom. Sometimes it's called Israel, sometimes it's called Ephraim. Most of the kingdoms went north. Ephraim was the biggest one, that's why they call it Ephraim. Retained the name of Israel, and a lot of the times the southern kingdom would be called Judah, that's where the temple was, they are in Jerusalem, and it was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, very small. So we're going to look at a king today who is a little down line of Solomon called Ahab. And the promise that the gospel of Matthew pulls out of Isaiah was made during his reign. And let me tell you a little bit about the pressure in his life. He reigned for four years with his father. First of all, that's weird. But then after that, he took the throne at the experienced, wizened age of 20 years old. His name was Ahab. And he was king over the southern kingdom, Judah, Benjamin, down in Jerusalem. And he was young. Let me tell you a little bit about what was happening in Israel in those days. We're going to pop up a map because it's Christmas. Didn't make sense. Okay, so in this time, the major political player was Assyria. Not Syria. I know it sounds just like it and it's confusing. I'm sorry. This is where Nineveh was. It's this modern day Iraq, northern Iraq, where Mosul is. Nineveh and Mosul are just across the river from one another. Nineveh would have been on the eastern side of the Tigris River. So this is the world power. Basically held that post from probably 1700 BC to the early 700s. And they were not to be toyed with, and they were expanding. And they had their eyes right here, Israel. This is geopolitical concerns, right? This is how the real world works today, even so. So what did the northern kingdom do? They're up here. Well, they made an alliance with Syria, not Assyria, Syria. Let's just call them Damascus, the capital of Syria, because your Bible calls them that sometimes. They were not God's people. They were not trusting in God the way he would call them to. They made a political alliance and said, hey, if we're going to stop the threat of Assyria from coming over here, we need to join forces. Why am I telling you this? Because Ahaz in the southern kingdom was tempted to join forces with them. And God told him, do not be afraid. I'm just going to read it right out here. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4. Through the Isaiah, he tells them, 
Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. Who are the two stumps? The king of the northern kingdom of Israel and the king of Damascus. Because they were threatening Ahaz, saying, hey, if you don't join forces with us to stop Assyria, we're coming after you. And they did. Civil war broke out again. So you're a 20-year-old king, and you have two tribes, and you have a foreign country called Damascus, and you have the northern tribes gunning for you, and you've got Assyria behind them. How bright does your future look like? Thanks, Dad. This is great. But this is Judah. This is people of God, and God calls them. He says, if you're not firm in your faith, Ahaz, you are not firm at all. And he goes on in chapter 10 of verse 7 in Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask of a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, he said, listen, Ahaz, you need to trust me. I know what's going on up in the north. I know that's a threat. I know that the chances of you overcoming them and holding the line are zero. You can trust me. And then God says, give me a sign. Ask for me a sign. I will give you a sign. I will, whatever you want. Make it as high as heaven or as low as hell. You come up with a sign, I'll confirm it because signs give you confidence that God is with you. That's what they do. And they pull you to look at him. And Ahaz said, what would you say? I'd make up a crazy sign. Here's what Ahaz said. No. Verse 12, Isaiah 7. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to a test. That sounds really good for a 20-year-old. That's like wise. No, it's not. He's not really interested. Nah. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Because this wearies the Lord. You don't trust me, Ahaz. You're in the line of David. My covenant is with you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So the promise is, I will protect you. Don't fear what's coming down from the north. Trust me, and I will give you a sign. And it was in the form of a child. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, in Old Testament, a a sign child meant one thing. God's deliverance is right around the corner. God's deliverance is near. It usually involved a dream or a prophecy like this one did. Think of Samson in Judges 13 through 16. Samson was also a sign child. What was the major threat to Israel then? It was the coastal villages, the coastal nations, like the Philistines. And God heard their prayer, and he sent Samson. Now, Samson wasn't a great judge or king, but that's not the point. God fulfills his promise in greater ways. And so this is a sign child, and the child, the name of the child is supposed to explain and confirm to Ahaz 
what God's going to do. It has, I'm going to be with you. The mission that you have to fulfill will be accomplished, even though you have zero chance on your own power, because God is with us, Emmanuel. Now, it doesn't stop there, because he renames the child. It gets a little strange. If we get to chapter 8 of Isaiah, verse 3, because this is most likely Isaiah's child. I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy you know has had a cry of my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So let's look at those two names. We understand what Emmanuel is, God with us. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is a Hebrew term that means hasten to the spoils, hasten to the prey. What that means to Ahaz and the southern kingdom is they're going to fall. The northern kingdom is going to fall. Even though they want you, even though they've made an alliance with Damascus, Assyria is going to run them over. Do not make an alliance with them. Trust me. It was all about speed. It says before the child, right, is of the age of majority, before that child grows up, which would have been about 12 years, 13 years in, in Israel, right? Bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, before they become an adult. Before that happens, before they reach the age of majority, the northern kingdom's going to fall because they won't trust me. It's all about speed. This is going to happen. So trust me. Hmm. Why didn't Ahaz want that sign? I had no idea. I had to do a little searching. Do you know why? Well, he wasn't stupid. You ever heard the term, the enemy of my enemy is my, what do you think Ahaz had in his back pocket? I'll tell you. If you go to 2 Kings and look at chapter 16, verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, who was the king of Assyria, right? The king of Assyria, which was way back over here, the big threat, the world power. He sent a messenger to him and said, I am your servant and your son. Come rescue me. Same word the Hebrew Bible uses for save. Come save me from the hand of the king of Syria or the northern kingdom." Listen, Ahaz wasn't dumb. He made a side deal with the world power and said, hey, if you're going to cross the Fertile Crescent and take this place, don't attack us. I'll be your son. I'll serve you. So did he really need the Lord? He had hedged his bet. Oh, God's going to give us a sign. That's cool. That's nice. Um, but I've already got it worked out. I have the power I need. Assyria is not going to crush me. They're going to crush the north, but I've cut a deal. Like, well, I would never do that. Yeah, you would. When you have the security and the comfort and the power that you need in life to feel secure and to feel happy and to feel significant, the promises of God become very philosophical to you. And to me, too. And I will read a verse like that. Oh, neat. It's, oh, a baby's born. 
It's more about plastic dolls and a nativity scene than God himself showing up on the scene to fulfill his promise to us. Friends, this blew me away. Ahaz already had the power he needed. He had cut a side deal. Yet God had told him, Emmanuel, God with us, and Mahal Shalar Hashba, destruction. That name, we, we would probably call that name, it's about to go down. And it's a little bit like, you know, if, if you've ever seen kids at a birthday party and they're doing a pinata, we used to do that. I don't know, do they do that out here? You know what a pinata is, right? But the way they make them now, they're like made out of wood, so you never can break them. And so there's all these like five, six-year-old kids can't do it, but there's always one kid, right? Somebody's cousin shows up and he's like, Josh Soto, like he lines up on that thing, and you know it's going to bust open, and all the kids get really ready to go because candy's going to go everywhere. God's like, they are destroyed already. Do not trust them. And he has like, I'm not. I got all the power I need. Now, let's take that verse right out of Isaiah and see what Matthew does. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. So this is how the promise worked through Isaiah to Israel. How did the promise work through Joseph and Mary that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, first, understand the angle of the author. Every author has one, even the inscripturated word of God. Matthew has a very simple angle that you would understand that Jesus is the true king. Now, the way he uses that is different terminology than we would say. They use the term Christ. Christ means king. It's cognate to the word Messiah in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew term. It means anointed king. So it's not just a good leader. It's one whom God has put his spirit on and has anointed him for a very specific purpose. So right in the opening of Matthew, we're not going to read it, but if you look at the genealogy, Matthew makes it very clear. He gives an origin story for Jesus and says, this is the son of Abraham. This is the son of David. And he draws the line all the way to Jesus. So Matthew wants to know right up front by connecting Jesus to all the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is the promised son of David. He is a king that is going to be different than the rest. So let's jump into that. I'm just going to read it. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth, or the origin of Jesus Christ, took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, very key, because Jesus is in the line of David through Joseph, only if Joseph listens. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is a sign child. 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Matthew's saying, oh yeah, all the stuff that's happening with Joseph and Mary right now, who are nobodies? Oh, oh yeah, everybody knows this. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz. Nobody would have made that up, right? This, this is amazing that we have this. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So a couple things about this, very important. Engagement was different in the ancient Near East with Israel. So it says betrothed. Do you anybody that's betrothed? No, you don't. We don't use that terminology. We use engagement, but it was a little bit different in that culture in this way. It was a legally binding agreement. So probably between the families. So this, this son, this Joseph and Mary, who would have been very young, were already committed to one another legally under Jewish law. Now, they were not living with one another. They still were at their family of origin place. And at some point, there would be a ceremony, and he would go take his wife and establish a new home. But they weren't having sex with each other. They weren't living with one another. They were still on their own, but they were legally together. So when Joseph sees that Mary's pregnant, I mean, he's, again, he's not stupid. This happens in the real world. What does he say? Ah. That kind of ruins everything. He assumes adultery, right? I mean, what else are you going to assume? So the text says two things. He was just or righteous, and that he was going to divorce her quietly. Many times we think, oh, he's a good guy, so he's going to do the right thing. That's not really what the text says. It says he was righteous or right before the law of God. And he understood that even if you're betrothed and not quite fully married yet, that and betrothal can be released if adultery happens. He knew, and he knew that was the way he needed to handle it. That was his righteousness or his justness. But he didn't want to make a public spectacle of Mary. Now, he loved her. He had two choices, a public divorce or the Mishnah, which is basically a commentary on the law of God, would allow for two witnesses to dissolve the marriage in the betrothal process if there was adultery. So Joseph decides to do that. And then an angel says, pump the brakes. She is pregnant, but her conception is not from a man. Her conception is from the Holy Spirit. And what you need to do is you need to understand that she's going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua, and it means God is salvation. And you're going to do that because he's going to save his people from their sins. And you need to take her. And he does. If Joseph says thanks but no thanks, Jesus is not in the line of David. Isn't that amazing? 
Joseph. There may be a better version of Ahaz. Who knows? Obeys and listens. And the Christ is born. Conception by the Holy Spirit. Well, how did that work? I don't know. It's not like ancient prophecies of other nations where there's actually intercourse between the God and the woman. It's not that. It doesn't even imply that. It makes me think of Genesis 1. Because anytime you see the Spirit, there's life, new creation. And in Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the waters, hovers over the formless and void creation. In other words, God's Spirit is there and he loves it and he delights in it. So there's new creation. Jesus has genetic material from Mary, but not from Joseph. But Joseph takes him, and Jesus is in the line of David. He does exactly what the angel says. And Matthew makes the connection. Oh, yeah, this is the fulfillment. This is the fullest fulfillment. This is everything God meant to Isaiah and Ahaz and Israel. When he said the virgin, in the the Old Testament, that would have just been maiden, right? In the, this, this virgin, this woman will conceive, and this will be Emmanuel. This will be God with us. This will be the king that will come that will rescue my people. And Matthew and Luke go to great pains to make sure you know that Mary was a virgin in our sense of the word, had not had sex with anyone, including Joseph. I'll think about Ahaz. This is a sign that only God could do, and this is the same fulfillment. Only God could do this. So the promise is that the king will come. The sign is that Mary's pregnant by the conception of the Spirit of God, and you're going you're gonna to marry her, even though you're going to basically have public scorn for the rest of your life, and you're going to raise this kid because he's the king, and you're going to worship him. That is the sign. He's, and he has two names as well, a title of Emmanuel, God with us, but you're going to call him Jesus. So let's, let's wrap those two together. He is God with us, and he saves. How does he do it? Well, I think of Maharshala Hashbaz. He takes on destruction for his people. He, he removes a curse the kingdom by becoming the curse. He doesn't just point to the evil, he overcomes it himself. Jesus becomes a curse for us. No king does that. This is, this is something so outside the imagination of God's people that they didn't know what to do with it. But this is God's promise. This is his sign, and this is the salvation that he brings. Does that bother you or excite you or all of the above? Are you willing to unwrap that and receive it? So for Thanksgiving, um, I am so old that I go to my kid's house for Thanksgiving. It's great. Someday, friends, someday. It was wonderful. I went to our oldest daughter, um, and she had her and her husband and the kids, and, and they were there. And then Christy's parents, my in-laws, and, um, uh, you know, I love him to death. Virgil is very wizened and old, and he's the kind of guy that doesn't 
like to discuss things like theology and nuances and philosophy. He just basically likes to live his life, and you learn by watching Virgil. And he's rough and rugged and an awesome dude and was a B-52 crew chief, and I love him to death. And we don't always have a lot to talk about, but we always talk about something. Well, his wife, um, Christy's mom, has severe dementia. She has vascular dementia. And so that means that blood is not getting to parts of the brain, and it's dying a slow death. The brain is. And so she is not in great shape. She doesn't know who her kids are. She doesn't know anything, really. doesn't know where she's at. She, does, she knows her husband, though. That's it, by God's grace. So it was, it, was, it was afternoon. We were by ourselves. It was quiet. And I looked over, and Deanna was sitting on the couch with her head in her hand, sobbing. You know, we're not too surprised by it because you don't, you, you, everything, you don't know what's happening. But you feel so bad. And Virgil goes over, and he sits down just quietly, takes her hand, and she leans into him, and she's sobbing. Now, what did I think? I'm in awe. Like, the air sucked out of the room, and I'm like, I'm learning from Virgil. I want to be a husband like that but I couldn't stop this verse was grinding in my head. I'm thinking God with us. The presence of her husband, her lover, her soulmate, her covenant partner was enough. Didn't answer her questions. It didn't make sense of anything that was happening to her, but he was there. It made me think of this verse. Because the ultimate promise is that God is with you. And you yourself may have your head in your hands right now. You yourself might be weeping. You yourself may not understand God's word to you in this moment, understand what is happening or why it's happening. But you can lean into him because he came not just to tell, he came to be. He came to be with you. He came to belong to you. He came to make sure that you belong to him. In fact, the New Testament describes the church as a marriage between God's people and Jesus. It just blew me away. And it was natural to them, and nobody told him to do it. He just knew to do it. Friends, you need to, you need to have some greater desire in your life. The things you want are not keeping you from God. You, you're just, they're too weak. You need to long for a rescue, long for a salvation that's bigger than what you're longing for. You need to long for a salvation that is in Christ. You need to long for a salvation that exceeds the hopes you have in things like, I don't know, finding a higher path to life. We do that, yes? You're never going to arrive. No matter what philosophy or what worldview, you're never going to be good enough. You're always going to be looking horizontal and judging your life based on the lives of others. So you need to long for a salvation that's greater than just finding a higher path to life or path to living. Jesus finished the race, and he will get you across the finish line. Secondly, you need to long for a salvation that is bigger than your politics. Well, why are you saying that? Because Jesus is a king, and you don't get a vote. 
And because one of the things we know about Thanksgiving is that we find our righteousness in our political association, don't we? One party says, well, we have the values of Jesus. One party says, well, we have the virtue of Jesus. You know what's interesting? In the New Testament, they assume Jesus was a political solution to their situation of Roman oppression. It's like you're missing it. I mean, it's not less than that, but you're putting a political title. He's a king. So you need to long for a salvation that is greater than that. You need to long for salvation that overcomes evil in you. So Jesus came as a king to overthrow sin, Satan, evil, death. You need to long for a salvation that does more than point out evil in you and more than point out evil in other people. You actually need to long for a savior that overcomes it in you. And it's very clear, Emmanuel, God with us, is the salvation of God. And the text says, oh, because he's going to save his people from their sin. Every piece of trauma in your life is rooted in sin and distraction from who God is and who you are in that. Jesus comes to deal with the root. You long for that. And long for unending light. Jesus is not swallowed up by the darkness, friends. He's not swallowed up by bad news. He's not swallowed up by a diagnosis of cancer or dementia. He's not swallowed up by disasters in your family. The darkness does not swallow him. He swallows up death, and he is resurrected and risen, which kicks open the door for you to have access to God the Father. And he's love. Long for, long for listen, long for love. What do you mean by that? Jesus doesn't teach you how to live only. He is love. What do you mean by that? What I mean is he gave himself up for you so that he could be with you. So long for a salvation that is love incarnate. Long for a salvation that is God with you. God with us. Long for a salvation that's in Christ alone. We don't want to unwrap it. We don't want to look deeply into it because we don't think we need it. There is nothing more prescient and appropriate for you right here today than receiving the gift that God has for you in the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the return of the King. You're made for him. And if you'll find hope in Jesus, he will give you a gift beyond your imagination. And so you can receive it right now. You don't have to wait. Everything pointed, even though there were local fulfillments throughout history, everything pointed to the true and better king, God the Son coming to claim his territory. So let's worship him. Let's, let's long for that. Jesus, we praise you. I praise you that you come, you came misunderstood, but you are the true Messiah, the true King. You are true goodness. Let us long for you. Let us long to know you through faith. Let us long to trust you. Let us long to see a return. 
Let us hate evil and hate what is around us and even hate what is in us from time to time. But let us love you because you bring healing for all that. So we surrender our lives to you and we long for your return. In the name of Jesus, amen.